The following is a message recorded during the morning worship service at Valley Bible Church in Billings, Montana. For more information, please visit our website at vbcmt.org. Well, you are well aware that Jesus commanded his followers to be about the work of making disciples. That is what we call the Great Commission. And the truth of Christianity is to be passed down from one Christian to the next, one generation to the next, passing on the truths of Scripture. And as individual Christ followers, it's our duty to teach others to obey all the things that Christ has commanded. Uh, that means as Christians, we're to influence other people for the sake of Christ. And throughout our Christian lives, as we ourselves mature in the faith, we are then to be imparting the truth that we know to others. We could say that we are always to be training the next generation of Christians, always investing in them, always teaching, always modeling, always practicing the biblical one another commands that we find in Scripture to help others grow in the faith. This is faithful Christianity. It's not just the work of pastors or elders. This is the work of every Christian. We are called to make disciples. And one of the most well-known discipleship passages in the New Testament is found in 2 Timothy chapter 2. I'd invite you to open up your Bible with me this morning there to 2 Timothy chapter 2. Here, the Apostle Paul instructs Timothy about his pastoral responsibilities to really train younger disciples. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2 with me. This is really a beloved passage of various discipleship ministries. But look at the text with me. 2 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Paul says, You therefore, my son, be strong that is in, the, that in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things which you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. N notice the command in the middle of verse 2. It's to entrust. That means to give over or to commend. It's to impart something precious to another person. And the precious things in this particular passage, we might say, are the pearls of sound doctrine, biblical truth. So the things that Timothy had heard Paul time and again preaching and teaching, he was then to pass on to others. So Paul's words here in verse 2 are similar to Jesus' words of, we are to teach others to obey all the things that Christ commanded, or I, I have commanded you. The Great Commission is really reflected in this passage. Paul instructs Timothy to pass on the teaching that he heard from the Apostle Paul, this apostolic teaching, and then he was to commend that teaching to faithful men. He was to entrust apostolic truth to faithful disciples, seeing them then nourished on the words of sound faith. They are to be equipped then for every good work. Now, those faithful men were then to turn around and give it away to the next generation. Paul, was to, Paul called for the entrusting of truth. It went from Paul. He, Paul, entrusted these things to Timothy. Timothy then entrusts them to faithful men, and then faithful men would pass that on to another generation of faithful men. And so the church endures. This is the work of really a healthy church. And I would say this is the work of individual healthy Christians. 
This is the work that we are all called to, always reproducing ourselves, always discipling others, always investing, always equipping, always thinking about building others up in the faith and imparting the truth of God's word to them. This could happen in our, in our homes, among our families, passing on the truth to our children. It can be to fellow church members as we invest in them and encourage them in the Lord. It could even be to unbelievers as we witness to them and tell them about Christ. We are always helping others follow Jesus Christ. This is the work of disciple-making. And although in 2 Timothy, Paul's instructing his young pastoral apprentice, Timothy, this is a truth that's not limited for pastors. This is the work of the whole congregation, or at least it ought to be. We know that from the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28, Jesus commanded all of his followers to make disciples. We know that. He was not just calling for just a ministerial class to do this work. Just the, the paid church staff will do that work. No, it was, it was the work of every Christ follower to engage in the entrusting of truth to other people. And just to see one other subset of this or another subset of the church that is engaged in this, consider the work of older women in the church that's presented to us in the book of Titus. Just turn over a couple pages in the right to the very next book, uh, the letter of Titus. There in that letter, in chapter 2, Paul focuses on the discipleship ministry of the older women in the church. So look with me beginning with verse 3 of chapter 2. Paul addressing specifically older women. Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the younger women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. So we could say, well, here is the work of older women in the church. This should be the heart and soul of all women's ministry. First, women are to focus on possessing a godly character and being a model of a sanctified life, of being reverent. And then they are to teach, Paul says, what is good. The older women are to be teachers so that they may encourage or instruct younger women regarding how, to, how they are to love and serve their husbands and even love their children and serve their children. They're also to teach them to be sensible, sensible or self-controlled, and also to be pure. And you see that older women are to teach younger women regarding purity. They're also to teach them about how to be kind and how to keep their own home and how to bring themselves under the authority of an imperfect husband. This is the responsibility of older women in the church. And this, again, this is not controversial. This is really not a passage that's difficult to understand. This is about as straightforward, really, as it could get. And yet, this is so hard to accomplish, this type of ministry in a church, not just for women, but for men also. Naturally, we gravitate towards ministries that do not require that we be vulnerable to others. Naturally, we gravitate towards ministries that do not require that we open up our life to another person. Ministries that do not require a, a sanctified life, a certain level of holiness and, and godliness. 
So it's at times difficult to motivate older women to come alongside the younger women. And it's hard for younger women to open up themselves to the lives of older women in the church. I find it's interesting today that uh, many younger women open themselves up to social media influencers, but they will, are reluctant to open themselves up to older women in the church. And in this, this no way exempts the men either. The same truths are true of the men. And just look at verse 2. Here, older men are clearly to be an example and to, adva- and to invest in younger men. Look at verse 2. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, and in perseverance. So here are the things we ought to strive for and then see built into the lives of the next generation. And what a great thing it would be to have more temperate, dignified, and sensible men. Men who understand sound doctrine and then who are examples of love, who give their, their lives away in loving and serving others and who are a model of perseverance I'd say that's perhaps the greatest need of this hour, and really every hour, this sort of men that might lead a church. And the only way that such men and such women are raised up is through the efforts of faithful disciple-making in the church, individuals being bent on investing in other people. And as we come to the Gospel of Mark this morning, our Lord we find our Lord increasingly pouring his life into a group called the Twelve. This is our Lord Jesus' own discipleship ministry as he invests in his disciples, twelve men who would carry on the truth of Christianity into a new age of human history, that is, the church age. And there can be no question that Jesus' making of the twelve disciples ought to instruct and inform us in our efforts to make disciples in our own personal ministry. There are certainly differences between Jesus' disciple-making ministry and our own. Just for as an example, Christ was God in the flesh. You know that. Christ was God in the flesh, and we are not. We could say we're plagued by our own flesh. We're, We're redeemed sinners. Christ was not. Christ makes disciples of himself, We're called to make disciples of Christ. This is a difference. Christ's ministry began before the founding of the church. And now the primary context of discipleship is the church. So there's some differences between how Jesus made disciples and how we make disciples. This is clear. But despite these differences, there's still much we can learn about disciple making by examining the life of Christ. And that's what we intend to do today. We intend to study Jesus' life and ministry and let it remind us of our responsibility to train and to invest in and to encourage others. This is what we do this morning when we're coming to Mark chapter 3. I invite you to turn there if you're not already there in our ongoing study of the gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 3. This morning we come to verse 13. And I'll read, invite you to follow along, verses 13 through 19 this morning. So please follow along. And he, that's Jesus, went up on the mountain and summoned those whom he himself wanted, and they came to him. And he appointed, and he appointed 12 so that they would be with him and that he could send them out to preach and to have authority and to cast out demons. 
And he appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James. To them he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder, and Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Now, just a reminder of the context of this passage, Mark has been deliberately constructing a theme. He he wants us to see and examine the various reactions and responses of different groups in Israel to Jesus. And beginning in chapter 2, we have five accounts back to back to back of Jesus conflicting with the scribes and the Pharisees. First, in chapter 2, was the incident of Jesus healing the paralytic man who was lowered down through the roof, whom Jesus both healed and forgave. See the scribe's response beginning in verse 5 of chapter 2. Look at it there. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Sons, your, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man speak this way? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone. Then the next account, Jesus had the temerity to dine with sinners. See the Pharisees' response in verse 16. And when the scribes and the Pharisees saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? Then Jesus' disciples did not follow the Pharisees' standard uh, for fasting. We see this then in verse 18. John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and they came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Then Jesus' disciples were condemned by the Pharisees for breaking the Pharisees' contrived Sabbath regulation by picking heads of grain on the Sabbath. Look at verse 24. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? That was the fourth account. And then the fifth and final altercation with the Pharisees comes in the beginning of chapter 3. Here, much to the Pharisees' ire, Jesus would heal a man's withered hand, and he would do so in the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And on Jesus' part, Jesus was grieved and angered by the hardness of the Pharisee's heart. And so Jesus would call the man to the middle of the synagogue. And we see the climax of this account in verses 5 and 6 of chapter 3. Look there. After looking around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. And then look at verse 6. The Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. So after these five accounts, the response of the scribes and Pharisees, how they would respond to Jesus, is thoroughly documented. It's been showcased by Mark. As a group, they will not be followers of Christ. In fact, they're going to be entirely antagonistic to him. They're now seeking to destroy him. And so next, Mark turns us towards the crowds. The crowds. And in verses 7 through 12 of chapter 3, the crowds rush to Jesus for the sake of experiencing his healing power. The disciples, 
We're called to sort of stand in waiting or to be on standby in a boat as Jesus taught or or interacted with the crowds on the seashore just in case Jesus might be crushed into the sea. He could quickly bail back into a boat. It was sort of a, a wild frenzy on this day with the crowds streaming to Jesus. And the crowds were seemingly ignorant of the spiritual significance of the Messiah who was in their very presence. They missed it. They were focused on being healed. Meanwhile, in verses 11 and 12, the unclean spirits, the demons, they interestingly know who Jesus is. They rightly call him the Son of God and fall down in homage before him. And they refer to him with a divine title. So the demons seem to recognize what the crowds fail to see. However, both the crowds and the demons fail to rightly worship Jesus. So just to review, the Pharisees and the scribes, they reject Christ. They will not have any part to him, and they're now seeking to destroy him. The crowds are just happily oblivious to Christ's true significance, and the demons are fully aware of who Christ is and his authority over them, but they're committed to their hatred of him. And so after these three, group, three groups, next Mark presents to us the twelve a group that will be much more favorable to Christ, although they won't be without some of their own spiritual short-sightedness. These will be the faithful men that Jesus will entrust the truth to and trust his life to. These will be the men who will function as the foundation of Christ's church. Jesus' Jesus's time on the earth was quickly coming to an end, and he would be passing the torch to these 12, these disciples. And so this morning, we'll consider these disciples from three angles in this passage. First, we'll look at their calling, followed by their mission, and then finally, we'll just consider their names, or the list that's given in verse 16 and following. And as we consider Jesus's 12 disciples, may we never get too far from remembering our own command to make disciples. So let us learn from this. Let us learn from Christ. So first we look at their calling, the calling of the twelve. Look again at verse 13 of chapter 3. It says, And he went up on the mountain and summoned those whom he himself wanted, and they came to him. The location of this mountain that Mark references here cannot be identified specifically. Traditionally, it's been understood to be likely this region that's referred to as the hills of Hatin, which is to the west of the Sea of Galilee. It would be clear that Jesus was going up there to escape the crowds, to the mountain, or we might better call them hills, to to really get away and to focus his attention now upon his disciples. In the parallel account in the Gospel of Luke to this one here in Mark, we find a few more details about Jesus going up on the mountain. In Luke chapter 6, verses 12 and 13, we find this. Let me read it to you. It says this, It was at this time that he went off to the mountain to pray, and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also named as apostles. So thanks to Luke, we understand that Jesus first went up on the mountain alone. Jesus went up on the mountain to be by himself and to spend time with the Lord in prayer. And then when the sun rose, 
Jesus called his followers to him. It would seem at first there was a large group, probably men and women who came with Jesus up on the hillside. And then from that group, Jesus would call the 12. Mark doesn't really give us any uh, very many details, but he stresses Jesus' desire for them to be his specific disciples. Look again at verse 13. It says, He went up on the mountain and summoned those whom he himself wanted. The ones he wanted. And notice the emphasis placed there. Jesus chose the men whom Jesus wanted. Apparently, he had already spent the whole night in prayer discussing them with the Father, praying for each one by name. And he's calling them to a a unique and deliberate role. Verse 14 adds the line, and he appointed 12. And then later in verse 16, we see the same phraseology repeated, except now they're referred to as the 12. They were appointed as the 12. This would be a, a fixed group. In the Gospel of Mark, on 10 different occasions, Mark will call this group the 12. That's how Mark likes to refer to them, the 12. Uh, moving forward in Mark's gospel, it seems that Mark will easily use that term, the twelve, or he'll use the term, the disciples, to refer to them. And the number twelve is presumably symbolic, although we're never told that directly. There are twelve disciples. In Matthew 28, or Matthew 19, verse 28, Jesus promised a specific future role of the twelve, the twelve disciples, or the twelve apostles, to be ruling over the 12 tribes of Israel. And let me read this. In Matthew 19, verse 28, Jesus said to the 12, Truly I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you shall also sit upon 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So in the future kingdom, the 12 apostles... That would be minus Judas and plus Matthias, who has replaced Judas in Acts chapter 1. These 12 apostles will form some sort of a ruling capacity over the restored tribes of Israel in the kingdom. Just as a side note, the apostle Paul, who is referred to as the apostle of the Gentiles in Romans 11 verse 13, will probably have a similar role over the Gentile or the predominantly Gentile church. But the 12 will function as some, in some capacity as rulers over the 12 tribes of redeemed tribes of Israel. So this would be the group. They would be the close-knit followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, his companions who would most benefit from his teaching ministry. On the night before Jesus died, Jesus would remind this group of men in John 15, verse 16, saying, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain. So as will become increasingly clear in Mark's gospel, uh, these are the men who Jesus would most reveal himself to and sort of entrust his life to and his ministry to. They were blessed with maximum exposure to the Lord Jesus Christ and Jesus chose and called each one of them. This brings us then to their purpose, or, or why he called them, their mission in verses 14 and 15. Look at those two verses with me. 
And he appointed 12 so, they could, so that they would be with him and that he could send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out the demons. Now, just one quick note here to just make regarding the text in front of us. This morning, I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. It's one of several good English translations. There are other faithful English translations available today, obviously. And the the editors of each one of those translations, they translate the Greek New Testament into English. And of those thousands are, uh, of the thousands of ancient Greek manuscripts that they work from and move into the English, of the ones, those ancient manuscripts that we have available, available to us today, there are occasionally small discrepancies in those ancient documents. And those discrepancies are referred to as textual variants. Think of them as variations in those ancient Greek manuscripts. And one of those variants occurs in Mark 3, verse 14. In some English Bibles, reflecting some ancient Greek manuscripts, there's an additional parenthetical note after the opening clause. For example, in the English Standard Version, which I know many of you use, which is really another faithful English translation of the Bible, it reads this, And he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles. It's that phrase, whom he also named apostles, that is disputed. Some English translations of the Bible are convinced that it should belong there. Others examine the evidence and conclude that the evidence indicates it should not be there. And that it was not original to Mark. Again, this is called a textual variant. So if the Bible in front of you is an ESV or or a legacy standard Bible, then you will have that phrase. If your Bible is a New American Standard like mine, or an NIV, or a New King James, then you will not see that phrase in your Bible. For those who think this phrase should be included in Mark, they, they reason, or excuse me, for those who think that this phrase should not be included in Mark, they reason that it was a scribal edition added to Mark, copied over from Luke chapter 6, verse 13. And they reasoned that there was some ancient scribe or some group of scribes who thought that they should harmonize Luke and Mark on this particular verse, so they added a line. Well, Luke 6, 6, 6, verse 13 reads, And when the day came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also called apostles. So Luke regularly uses that term apostles to describe the 12. Mark seems to prefer the term disciples or the term the 12 over the term apostles. But Mark does use the term apostles on one other, or one other place in Mark, and it's really undisputed. That's in Mark 6 verse 30. So in this particular instance, I lean towards the ESV and the LSB being correct to include that phrase. That's sort of my leaning after examining the evidence. I think that's actual. That's actually Mark's own words that he added there. But I'll be quick to admit that the evidence on both sides of this is rather compelling, and I, I could be wrong. So I'm, I'm not going to die for this truth, that's for certain. But it's helpful for us to think about how our Bibles are constructed and why we find things like this, and to be not be alarmed when someone points them out to you. So all that now to come back to 
our passage to think about the mission given to them, their purpose, why Jesus called them in verses 14 and 15. And notice he gives them a twofold purpose. Jesus appointed 12 so that they would be with him, so that they would be with him, and so that they would also be sent out. Those are the two purposes. So the first is that they would just be with him. They would spend time with him, be in close proximity to him, certainly in close fellowship. We would say this is for the purpose of training them, for them to witness Jesus' life, to see his character, to see how he lived, and for Jesus' life to just sort of bleed on them and rub off on them, for they to catch how he lives and how he thinks and just the godly character that he possessed. They were blessed with being with the eternal Son of God. What an amazing privilege. I think without question, this is a discipling model for us. To disciple someone, we must be with them, spend time with them, get to know them, rub shoulders with them, spend time in life next to them, teaching them, modeling Christianity, discussing things. That's critical for discipleship. That's why Jesus called the 12 to to be with him. These were the men who would carry on the truth, establish the church. So Jesus wanted them with him. But he also sent them out. This seems to be a reference to the short-term mission trips that Jesus would send the disciples on. In Mark chapter 6, we see Jesus sending them out in pairs. And Jesus specifically highlights two of their tasks. They would preach and they would have authority to cast out demons. Presumably, they would preach the very same message that Jesus was preaching. That's the message we heard summarized back in Mark 1.15. Jesus said the time is fulfilled. The, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. So I believe the disciples were preaching a message of repentance. This, this is confirmed, by the way, in Mark chapter 6. Turn over there with me just a couple pages to the right to Mark chapter 6 and look with me at verse 7. And he summoned, this is verse 7, Mark chapter 6, and he summoned the twelve and began to send them out in pairs and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. See that? Jesus then gives some additional instructions about this mission, but Mark records, records what they did in verses 12 and 13. They went out and preached that men should repent. That was their message. In verse 13, they were casting out many demons and were anointing with oil many sick, sick people and healing them. So here's, here's their mission. They're going out, they're preaching, preaching that men should repent. Get ready, the kingdom of God is at hand. The Son of God is, is coming. Get ready, repent of your sins. But they were also casting out demons. And it's interesting to note that Mark specifies in, back in chapter 3, verse 15, that the twelve would have authority to cast out demons. They would have this special authority. And here in Mark chapter 6, we see them doing that very thing. But in order to cast out demons, they needed this special authority from the Lord. Special power on loan from Christ to cast out demons. This this was something that was exclusively given to the 12. There were other disciples of Christ, obviously, who did not possess this special authority that Jesus gave to the twelve. This power over the demonic world was entrusted to them, but we would also say it wasn't automatic. 
This power had limits. We say this because in Mark chapter 9, the disciples encounter a demonic spirit that won't come out, that they don't seem to have the power to cast out. And Jesus would tell them, well, some can only come out by prayer, leveraging God the Father's help in this process. So this limited authority to cast out demons was given to a select few, namely the 12 disciples or apostles. Now today, I think we would all grant that demon possession still occurs. But I don't don't think there's anyone who possesses such an apostolic authority to cast out demons today. That was unique to the 12. I know this would contradict many of the claims of those who are kind of invested in so-called deliverance ministries. I do not think there's anyone who has this special authority to cast out demons today, or the special gift of exorcism, we might say. There's no one who has the apostolic authority to cast out demons like the apostles had. Now, when we encounter uh, demonic or demonized individuals, which maybe occasionally we will in this life, we should pray for them. We should cry out to God for them, and we should certainly bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to them. We should preach to them. But we should remember that Jesus himself is the one who possesses all authority in heaven and on earth. He possesses the authority, so we appeal to him. In Jude chapter 9, Michael, the archangel, even appeals to Jesus. Michael himself won't even cast out a demon. He instead says, the Lord rebuke you to Satan. So that's a good model for us. We appeal to Jesus. We don't pretend to have this authority. The apostles were given the ability to cast out demons, and they were also given the ability to heal. We see that in Mark chapter 6. The ability to cast out demons, the ability to heal, this were part of the gifts that the apostles possessed. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12, Paul calls them the signs of an apostle. You could recognize an apostle if they were able to cast out demons and heal people. That was unique to them. And it's worth noting in Mark chapter 6, verse 13, that we see, we see the disciples also healing people here in this short-term mission trip. That was one of the authorities, that was part of the authority entrusted to them. They could heal. So this was another unique gift entrusted to them, one not mentioned, by the way, in Mark 3, verse 13. But I think we could assume that that was part of the authority that was given to them there. That was part of what they would go out and do. So just to review, the 12 were anointed to be with Christ and to be sent out. And when they were sent out, they would preach, and they would also cast out demons, and presumably they would also be healing, because that's what we see them doing in Mark chapter 6. This was the mission of the 12. These short-term mission trips would function as really a training ground for the time when Jesus would depart and turn everything over to them, and they would be entrusted with the task of founding the church. So we've seen their calling, we've seen their mission, and finally we come to their names. Their names. Look at them again with me, beginning in verse 16 of Mark chapter 3. Here we find a list of names. And he appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to them he gave the name Bonerges, which means sons of thunder, and Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Altheus, and Thaddeus, 
and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. So this is one of the lists that we find. We find similar lists like this in Matthew. We find one in Luke. And we also find a fourth in the book of Acts. And when we compare those lists of the disciples that we find in Scripture, there are a few revealing things that jump out to us. One, Simon Peter is always listed first. Presumably, this is because he was sort of the de facto leader, the speaker, the spokesperson of the twelve. Judas Iscariot is always mentioned last. He's the last in the group, which is, which is to be understood. And understandably, he's absent then in the list that we find in the book of Acts. Uh, in studying, also in studying these various four lists, there's a certain grouping that emerges as we look at the lists. Uh, the lists suggests that they were sort of divided up into groups of four, three groups of four. The same name in the list always begins the four groups. Peter always begins the first group of four. He seems to be the leader of the group that contained James and John and Andrew. The second group is sort of headed or led by the name Philip. Philip, he's the sort of de facto representative of that second group. He's always the first of the second group, a group containing Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew. The final group of four is always headed by this man named James, the son of Alphaeus, and he's listed besides Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot. So three groups of four is what we find. And in the list that we have in Mark chapter 3, Mark provides additional details to us about three of these men, Simon, James, and John. He mentions their nicknames that were given to them. Mark mentions the nickname first given to Simon. It's the nickname Peter. This was the name given to Peter or given to Simon at his initial meeting with Christ. When the two first met, Jesus gave Peter or Simon a nickname. And that, that name was the word Petros, the word Peter. It means rock or stone. He said, you will be Petros. And Petros was not a common Greek name. It wasn't a common Aramaic name either. This was a, a definite descriptive title, a nickname given to him. And it means stone or it means rock. And opinions vary as to why the Lord assigned this particular title to Simon. Was it a reference to his rock-like character and his fortitude? Or was it as a reference to the foundational role that he would, he would play in the establishing of the church, or is it somehow a hybrid of both? We know that, of course, yes, Peter did play a pivotal role in the establishment of the church, and we also know that he had a firm resolve to his character, but we also know that Peter didn't always act that way. Peter had some great colossal failures in his life as well. But throughout the gospel accounts, there's a pattern of Jesus referring to Simon as Peter, or excuse me, referring to Simon Peter as Peter when he was failing to act like the rock that the Lord had called him to be. If, if, if Peter was wavering, then he would get the name Simon, reminding him of his old life. If he was standing strong in the faith, it would be the, the term Peter. He was rock-like. Uh, John MacArthur, in his extremely helpful book on the Twelve Disciples, called The Twelve Ordinary Men, provides some unique insight into this nicknaming of Peter. And as, 
As men in the church, we recently worked through this book together, and it was really an edifying time considering Simon Peter. And I just want to read, read you some of MacArthur's words about the significance of this nickname. MacArthur writes this, The nickname was significant, and the Lord had a specific reason for choosing it. By nature, Simon was brash, vacillating, and undependable. He tended to make great promises that he could not follow through with. He was one of those people who appears to lunge wholeheartedly into something, but then bails out before finishing. He was usually the first one in, and too often, he was the first one out. And when Jesus met him, he fit James's description of a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. Jesus changed Simon's name, it appears, because he wanted the nickname to be a perpetual reminder to him about who he should be. And from that point on, whenever Jesus called him Simon, he sent him a subtle message. If he called him Simon, he was signaling that he was acting like his old self. If he called him Rock, he was commending him for acting like the way he ought to be. MacArthur adds, Tommy Lasorda, former manager of the Los Angeles Dodgers, tells the story of a young, skinny pitcher who was new in the Dodgers minor league system. The youngster was somewhat timid, but had an extraordinary, powerful, and accurate arm. Lasorda was convinced that the young pitcher had the potential to be one of the greatest ever. But Lasorda says the young man needed to be fierce and competitive, and he lacked that. He needed to lose his timidity. So Lasorda gave him the nickname that was the exact opposite of his personality, Bulldog. And over the years, that's exactly what Oral Hershiser became, one of the most tenacious competitors who ever took the mound in the major leagues. The nickname became a per perpetual reminder of what he ought to be, and before long, it shaped his whole attitude. This young man, Simon, who would become Peter, was impulsive and overeager and impetuous. He needed to become like a rock, so that is what Jesus named him. From then on, the Lord could gently chide or commend him just by using one name or the other. That's great significance, thinking about Jesus' working with this one particular man and how he developed him. But after Peter, we come to James and John, the sons of a man named Zebedee. We already saw them in Mark chapter 1. And here in verse 17, Mark gives us a detail nowhere else found in Scripture, and that is that James and John also were given a nickname, the name Sons of Thunder. We can't say for certain why Jesus gave them this nickname, because it's nowhere explained or developed anywhere else, but it's likely a reference to their natural, fiery nature. I mean, just as a reminder, in Luke 9, 54, it was these sons of thunder who desired to call down fire from heaven upon a Samaritan village who was unwilling to house them, just weren't friendly to them. So they were, let's wipe them out, fire from heaven, sons of thunder. This was James and John. Next, we find Andrew. He is the, the least known of this leading group of four. His name means manly. He was the first to be called, and he recruited his brother, which was Simon Peter. In fact, Andrew, we find him regularly introducing others to Christ. He has sort of a bit of an evangelistic spirit to him. 
Philip then comes. He's always listed first in the second group, and he's hardly even mentioned in the synoptic gospels. That's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We finally, beyond the list, we don't know anything about him, but his personality really shines in the gospel of John. John brings Philip to life as he does some other disciples. Like some of the other disciples, he was also a fisherman. And next, Mark lists Bartholomew. In the, in the Gospel of John, he goes by the name Nathaniel. And in John 1, verse 47, at their first meeting, Jesus said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. That's what our Lord said to him on his very first meeting of Bartholomew. Matthew comes next. He also goes by the name Levi. He was the tax collector turned disciple that we saw back in Mark chapter 2, verse 14. And then Thomas, another, another disciple who comes to life in the Gospel of John, one who I think is often mislabeled and given the name Doubting Thomas. Certainly Thomas was a realist, but he's one who has a great love for Christ, a great passion for our Lord. Next comes James, the son of Alphaeus. This would be the first of the third group. He's sometimes referred to as James the Less. Another lesser-known disciple is Thaddeus. Apparently, he also had a second name. Uh, he's sometimes called Judas, the son of James. The second to last name given to us is Simon the Zealot. Before his life of discipleship, he was in some way associated with a Jewish nationalist movement known as the Zealots. He was sort of a political insurrectionist, one given to rebellion, but he would come to surrender his life to Christ. And then finally, we come to Judas Iscariot. Iscariot, that means a man of Kiriath. That's what Iscariot means, which seems to indicate a, a particular region in Israel, the region of Judah. He was a man of Judah, which is unique because he's the only non-Galilean of the 12 disciples. Mark also notes, and he betrayed him. He betrayed him. It's spoken in the past tense, interestingly. Mark seemed to, to know that he needed to say nothing more. All of his audience would be aware of, of this man's secret de dealings to sell out the Lord Jesus Christ. All of Mark's audience, all of his readers would already know about this man. So he says, he also betrayed him. So these are the cast of characters that Jesus called. Uh, these would be the group that make up the 12, the 12 that Jesus would most invest in. Different backgrounds, fishermen, a tax collector, a, a zealot, various backgrounds, all used, all harnessed to be great laborers for Christ, Midas, the one who betrayed him. So Jesus would call them, he would train them, they would be with him, he would invest his life into them, and then he would send them out for ministry. We began our time this morning considering Paul's affirmation of the Christian's responsibility to make disciples, the Great Commission. He said, the things you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust those to other faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So as we look at this and we think about Jesus' life and his training of the 12 and calling them, I think again we're reminded, well, what about us? What about you? Who, who are you invest investing in? Who are you seeking to minister to? Who are you pouring your life into? 
Husbands, I, I hope that's you pouring into your kids and into your wife. Wives, I hope you're investing into your husband and encouraging them. I hope you're pouring into your kids. Grandparents, I hope you're pouring your life into your grandchildren. That, that's good, but we should also have others. Other people inside and outside the church that we know and we're particularly seeking to encourage. I mean, after all, this is part of what we're called to do and be in the church is to care about the spiritual well-being of others. So I ask you, who are you ministering to? Who are, who are you training? Who are you serving with the hopes of maybe freeing them up so that they can grow and be blessed? Who are you reading the Bible with? Who do you pray with? How are you encouraging others? This is what we all must wrestle with as we think of Jesus' call to make disciples. Uh, we cannot be content to just cloister ourselves off in little pockets and never minister to anyone else. We are disciple makers. That's what a Christian is. And so that, what's, that is what we're to give ourselves to. Let us let Christ model to us, impact us, and let us give our way, give our lives away into others. Let's pray as we, together as we think about this task entrusted to us.